Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and you'll never guess where I ended up this week. In the office of a man who is in the Internet Hall of Fame. Now, those of you who follow Big Questions every week know that I have never been very good with technology. For many years, I could have even been classified as a technophobe. But there is a quote I like that is pushing me out of that stage. It's from Carl Augustus Menninger. It goes like this. Fears are educated into us and can, if we wish, be educated out. So I went to see a teacher, a professor, a professor who had a part of changing the world. Leonard Kleinrock was in the room at UCLA back in 1969 when the first internet message was sent. He took me into that very room at UCLA. You can arrange to visit it too and see the computer and the router as they were back then, along with some of Leonard's equations that became the theoretical foundation of computer networking. Afterward, we walked to Leonard's nearby office at the Henry Samueli School of Engineering and Applied Science, an office that he's had since 1963. When we sat, he told me how the journey to that moment in 1969 and through the rest of his life started with a comic book. As I listened to his story, the internet became human and I feel a little more connected to it. I'm going to try to get up a YouTube video of my visit to the room on Big Questions Podcast with Cal Fussman so you can see the sacred spot. I'm also going to try and jumpstart the content on my Instagram and LinkedIn pages with some images of the room as well. Now, many of you reach out to me, do so through at Cal Fussman on Twitter, so you know I'm there, but I'm really trying to organically head further into the world of social media this year. I know I've tried before, but this time it just feels right. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with Leonard and it moves toward what the internet will look like in the future. So there's plenty to think about. One of the points that comes out of the conversation is how the people who created the internet were unable to anticipate many of its subsequent developments. We talk a lot about lack of privacy and if that makes you uncomfortable, about the best advice I can offer is for you to go to sportique.com and order a hoodie or a comfy tee because sportique dreads always make you comfortable. And you'll be even more comfortable to know that you'll get a 20% discount if you use the offer code CAL. When you're in your sportiques, as I am now as I record this intro, life always feels good. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did being part of it. Leonard Kleinrock is a treasure to the world, so let's get straight to him. Where are you from? The I, th- city. I just listening to you talk, I know you're from New York. Right. Where in New York? What's the background? So here? I was born in Harlem. 
only because that's where the hospital was. It was a gerrymandered district of Harlem, a place called Sydenham Hospital on Manhattan Avenue. Imagine being born on Manhattan Avenue when New York City was the largest city in the world. Our apartment was up in Washington Heights, in a bad part of Washington Heights, uh, the wrong side of Broadway. So I grew up there, went to elementary school there, born in 1934. Uh, so it was an exciting place. Did you always know you were good at math? Not particularly. I mean, in elementary school, I enjoyed it. I did well. So you weren't uh, one of those prodigies that no. was doing your multiplication when, oh, when you were two. Now that you mention it, yes. I, <laughs> I, I thought uh, so. Yeah, I remember my dad was a grocer. He had these paper bags where he put the groceries in, and he'd write each item, you know, 47 cents, $1.56, whatever, long column, and he could add it up. Always impressed me. So I learned to add numbers very quickly, and he could, they could give me large numbers to add, a bunch of them, and I could do it as, as a kid. I don't know how I did it, but it wasn't a standard way. I, I decided, you know, I would add the more important integers first, the more significant portion. So I had a cocky memory way of doing it, but I could do that well. So you you were inventing mathematics even I when you were like four years old. That's a little strong, but I was. But there was no, there was no. I hadn't gone to school yet, so I had to do it the, the way I could figure it out. Now I'm beginning but, to see why I'm sitting in this office. <laughs> but in terms of being a scientist or an engineer. There was an interesting event that took place when I was a kid, which destined me to be an engineer, but I didn't realize it then until some years later. Well, as a kid, raised in New York, what do you do? You play with gadgets, you read comic books, you build things, you take things apart and put them together. And one side, inside a Superman comic, I was about six or seven, just early elementary school. Instead of comics, there was a description of how to build something called a crystal radio. What is that? Didn't know what it was, but it said if you put this together and you can get the parts in your house, it wouldn't cost you anything, you'd be able to hear music in an earphone and just cha by changing stations. And that looked challenging because I could see what, what did I need. I needed an empty toilet paper roll. Well, I could find that in the house. And then I needed some wire. Well, I went down the street and found it in the curb. Then you needed a crystal. Well, what the heck is a crystal? Well, they said you can make it by taking your father's old razor blade and a piece of pencil lead and just move it around until you get a station. Well, I could find a razor blade and a piece of pencil lead in the house. And then I needed an earphone. Now, I didn't have an earphone, but I knew in the candy store there was a telephone booth down the street. In the telephone booth is a telephone handset. And if you unscrew the hearing part, the earphone will drop out so I stole the damn thing. <laughs> and I needed one more part. I needed something called a variable capacitor. I had no idea what that was. It's one of these things that looks like this. I knew I couldn't find that in the street or in my house, but I knew where to get it. I knew there was a radio electronics region of New York down on Canal Street. So my mother took me in the subway, walked up to the first store, walked up to the counter, looked at the salesman, I banged my fist on the table, I said, I need a variable capacitor. <laughs> <laughs> this is out of a comic book. <laughs> right Go ahead. And then he says, what size? Oh, I had no man. idea. So it blew my cover, you know. <laughs> and uh, I told him why I wanted it. He knew exactly what I needed. He sold it to us for a nickel, took it home, wired it up, made an antenna by dropping a wire out of the apartment down the side of the apartment building. 
and I could move the crystal around and the variable capacitor, and I could hear music. And I was hooked. Well, where was the music coming from? Radio station, AM radio station. It was just picking it up. The antenna was picking it up. It was getting oh, rectified. Oh, you made your own. Man, you, it was were, you were making these connections. How old were you? I was about six or seven. Oh, I, don't, I didn't know why man. it was working. But you got to understand, it, it was magic. It still is. I'm still trying to figure out how it works. That's half a joke. <laughs> you know, electromagnetism is just amazing magic stuff. So I was, as a result of that, I was hooked. And I didn't know it. But I spent the next... 10, 15 years building radios. I would go to neighbors' houses, to the uh, radio store, take old broken radios, tear them apart, and put them together again as a new radio. Because, you know, you can get diagrams what they should look like. So I'd, I'd build the parts, put them together, and I kept building radios on my own. For a number of years, so I had a lot of experience. I read about electronics. I had this great book called Elements of Radio by authors Marcus, Marcus, and Horton. I still remember it. I still have a copy of the book. And I, I learned on my own how these things work. Not the mathematics, but the understanding of how the electrons move and how they get amplified, etc. So I was into electronics uh, as, as a kid. And yet I was not committed to become an engineer, whatever that was, until I entered college. I had a great elementary school, Smart kids, some of my mathematics capability came out then, but it wasn't, you know, a big thing. And then I went to junior high, which was a hellhole. It and always is, no matter where the junior, junior. high is. Because they get kids it's from you. It's, uh, it's puberty. It's puberty and it's strangers. Right. And then I, on a lock, I took the exam for Bronx Science and I got in. And then I was worried because if you go to Bronx Science. You, you got to do something. A, you got to do, and B, you're sort of on a science track. Right. But I wasn't yet committed to that. I figured, okay, it's a great school, I'll go. So I went. And the first course I took was a course in social studies. Ah, not science. Except when I got to the classroom, the teacher said, we're going to study social studies using the scientific method. <laughs> I said, no. no. <laughs> it's a great school. I took radio engineering classes there and the usual stuff. And by the end of high school, I was, it was clear I was going to become or study to become an electrical engineer. So I... And where did that take you? Well, I was an usher working five hours a day all through high school and part of junior high. Through mo at a movie theater? Movie theater, yeah. So uh, you were watching all the movies? Watching all the movies, but, you know, putting a lot of time in, not much time to study. I had to bring money into the house because my dad had gotten very ill. He couldn't work anymore. So I was helping to support the income. Do you think Get, that helped you in a way? Yes and no. It sort of isolated me a little bit. I was never much of a social animal. Yet you were going to connect the world. Who knew then? <laughs> <laughs> I was just struggling to get through. But I did fine in high school, set to go to city college. I knew I couldn't afford to go to a you know, private school. I did right away to every chamber of commerce in the United States to see what scholarships they had. And I got a number, but it wasn't enough wouldn't pay for living expenses necessarily or travel expenses. And I had to help support the house. So it was clear I was going to go to City College. It was free. It was a great school. One of the best in the country at the time. So the summer between graduating high school in June of 51 and entering college in September, I took a job as a lifeguard. 
the Lower East Side, sort of the worst neighborhood, broke up more fights than I saved people, and I saved 14 people, so <laughs> busy time. Ready to go to City College. Now, meanwhile, my father, who was an immigrant, from, from then it was Austria, now it's Ukraine, Western Ukraine, he had some cousins, and one of them had an electronics firm in downtown New York. And he took me to see him just before I entered City College. I went there, it was a magnificent place. It was 10, 10 employees, and they were using photo electronics to measure serial boxes moving down a conveyor belt or detecting people walking through a doorway. They were designing and building electronic stuff, which was great. And he offered me a job. And, but I said, look, I'm, I'm about to enter City College. On the way home, my dad convinced me to take the job. A, because it'll be interesting, but B, he needed me to earn a salary. <laughs> So I went to night school. Wow. All my, my electrical engineering entire career was done at night. After work. Uh, after work. And it, the electrical engineering program typically would take four and a half years. It took me five and a half, which is really fast, going at night every summer. And so during the day, I was in the practical, real world of electronics and how it's being used in design. And at night, I'm studying the theory behind it. And who am I studying with? Who are my classmates? So who goes to night school? Crazies, dropouts, really poor kids who can't afford day school, and the GIs coming back from World War II. This was 1951. They were on the GI Bill. Right. So it's an amazing mix of people. And the professors were also working during the day. So they came not only with the theoretical, but the practical side. I get a very rich education, but I worked my head off. I uh, had no time to study. I'd get up before seven, get to bed about one or two in the morning. You know, I, For five, more than five years. Five and a half years. Right? Wow. Did you have any idea at the time that this would lead to the first internet message? There was no concept of an internet at all at the time. You had circuits, you know, amplifiers, control theory. Digital circuits were just getting started. This is before Sputnik. This is before Sputnik. Sputnik was 1957. I graduated in 57 from my bachelor's degree. And by the way, I was first in my class, day and evening. One day, some people from MIT came by at four o'clock in the afternoon to describe this great scholarship they had. It's called a staff associate program run by MIT Lincoln Laboratory. So I took off work early, made it up the next day, listened to this lecture. This guy described this magnificent program You'd work at Lincoln Lab in the summer. During the school year, you'd be a student at MIT. As a research assistant, as a full-time student, they'd pay you a regular salary during the summer. you get experience and exposure. Take care of everything. So this, and he said, if you want an application, see the professor in the back of the room when I'm finished with this lecture. So after the lecture, I went back. There was an engineering professor there, electrical engineering professor, and I said, I'd like an application. He said, I don't recognize you. What's your name? So I told him. And I said, you wouldn't recognize me because I go to evening session. He says, evening session, get the hell out of here. No. He tossed me out. He wouldn't give me an application. <laughs> he thought you were one of the crazies. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote away, got the application, I got the scholarship, and it put me through my master's. By the way, I got married while I was an undergraduate. I married when I was 20. I was able to move out of the house, and I was earning money, uh, and it was really a stifling environment. You know, I had didn't even have a, a bedroom in my... I, I slept in a folding bed in the living room. So, you know, studying was really hard. I studied on the subway, by the way. 
In fact, I can show you the kinds of notes I made. What I would do is I take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, fold it in half, fold it in half again, so I'd get basically oh, eight man, columns. this is pure mathematics. Everything yeah. is so precise. Right. But y y you see, the nice thing about this is, where did I study? On the subway, going to and from work. You stand, you can't get a seat. So you're studying like this. You had to make it small and narrow. So you're dealing with so, an eighth of a page at a time. Exactly. But the point is, wow. I, didn't have, I didn't have much time to study. I'd get out of class at 11, and then I'd go to something called house plan. Did you ever hear of house plan? I never Italy? heard of house plan. CCNY had no, and doesn't have any fraternities or sororities. But they had two brownstone buildings right next to campus in which there were clubs. They were called houses, men's and women's. I was in something called Dean House. And you go there from 11 o'clock till midnight, just socialize. We'd have dances and things like that occasionally. So I'd get home, midnight I'd get out of there, take the bus home, get to bed about 1, 1.30, wake up by 7, off to work again. No time to study, except on a subway. Wow. Anyway, it was interesting. You know, what, what's fascinating about this is I'm seeing how compressed your early life was. You're well, sleeping on a folding bed, yeah. and then you are going to get to the point where you're going to send out the first message on the internet that's going to ultimately connect the whole world. Yeah, but you don't think about that when you're doing it. Yeah, and you're just on the subway studying. <laughs> that's exactly right. Got it. And I, was, I wasn't sure I was gonna get a graduate degree then I went to MIT for the master's, and that was the end. I didn't wanna go beyond the master's degree, but my thesis supervisor said, You've got to get a PhD. I said, I don't want a PhD. I programmed so we'd have our first baby just when I finished. My son came in in August of 58. He said, you got to do it. I said, I don't want. So they twisted my arm. And then I said, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to have two conditions. I'm going to work for the best professor I know at MIT, and I'm going to do a piece of research that will have impact, not some little tiny nothing. All my classmates were doing extensions of some particular field of study, and I knew the problems were hard and not significant. And happily, at MIT and Lincoln Lab, I was surrounded by computers, and I recognized sooner or later they're gonna have to talk to each other. And there was no adequate networking technology to allow that. So that's what I did my research on. So back then, everybody was talking to one computer or trying to get one computer to solve its problems. Well, in their facility. Right. At MIT, there'd be a computer. You'd have access, you'd have rights to use it. A time-shared computer, you'd log on, you'd get it for a while, you'd share it with other people, but you wouldn't go across the you country. You couldn't go across the street. No, no. You'd it had to, to be in your particular office. In your, in your office, or, or a terminal that connected to it locally, like maybe 100 feet, 50 feet. That was as far as it went. Right. But you're surrounded by all these computers. I say, And the computers were filling up rooms, right? Filling up rooms, filling up large. IBM machines, specially made machines at, at, at Lincoln Lab. Uh, it was a world of heterogeneous machines that couldn't talk to each other. So my laptop now, the power and possibilities in that laptop, how many rooms of computers would it take back then to deliver the same potential? You mean how many cities would you have to build? <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's orders of magnitude more capability than you wow. have. In this watch, this is a 35-year-old watch. It's a, it's a full scientific calculator. It does X to the Y and all the I mean, there was more power in this than sent our 969 space shot to the moon. I mean, they had very weak machines, very little storage. 
They had to write very tight code. So, you know, Moore's Law has given us a, a gift you can't believe. Okay, so you knew back then, someday these computers are going to talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. Was there like a moment where you had that, like, epiphany? No, it, it, I became aware, because I wanted to, I was at Lincoln Lab, which right. is 20 miles from MIT, okay. and MIT, and there were machines at both sides. I said, why can't I oh. use that machine when I'm here? That makes perfect sense. But there was nobody was thinking about this problem at all, which made it a perfect problem for me. I wanted to have something that nobody was looking at that would have impact, would be an important problem, and where I had an approach to solving it. And I did have an approach. This, this queuing theory was the right tool to use to understand how they're going to behave. So that combination says perfect for me. So were you seen as the man who was going to do this because as you're saying nobody else was thinking about it when you no you didn't nobody even <laughs> you gotta understand my classmates at mit and the faculty there were all great people it was a golden era of brilliance and innovation and creativity my work was one but nobody could really see where it's going when i finished my dissertation i made my presentation to my committee they really liked it and they told me you better write a book on this. And Lincoln Lab, which is where I Look at was that funded, communication that's right, this this is my PhD dissertation wow. in book form. And it was the, the, very few theses were, were put into books. So at that point they recognized, yeah, there's something really good here. But nothing could be done with it. I mean, I graduated. I, nothing I came could, here. Why could nothing be done? Because it was only thoughts in your mind that you were putting down in formulas? You needed somebody to fund the creation of a network. Uh, so who, who's going to do it? You needed to get like the crystals, <laughs> somebody who can figure out, get the empty toilet paper roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, the technology was not hard. Just who's going to invest millions of dollars? So I went to AT&T. I said, look you got to build a data network to allow computers to talk to each other. Your voice network won't do it. And they said, go away, little boy. You know, oh, wow. They said it wouldn't work, and even if it did work, they wanted nothing to do with it. And why not? Because they had a very successful voice that network. That would have eaten their lunch. I don't think they even anticipated that. They didn't see a business model. There was no data to send. So why build a network until there's a business reason? They were short-sighted, of course. Right. But it was this early This is like on. Kodak not seeing the future. Exactly, exactly. In, in photography. Exactly, portable cameras, you know, digital. Digital media. Photography. So it was not until ARPA. What is ARPA? Okay, ARPA is a result of something called Sputnik, the first satellite the Russians launched. It was October 7th, 1958. They sent this thing up around the globe going beep, beep, beep and annoyed the hell out of America because we knew we were now second in technology. President Eisenhower said that will never happen again. So in February 1958, he created an organization that would bring the United States capability back up. He created this thing called the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, ARPA, in the Department of Defense, whose purpose it was to fund universities, research labs, schools, and bring the capability of America back up in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. That was the whole idea, to bring the capability back up. And they started funding these areas. Here and, comes the money. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it was, a, it was a great program. Thank you, Sputnik. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, the Russians were, Sputnik was not the only thing they did. They were the first ones to land anything on the moon. They crashed into the moon. They crashed into Venus, you know, Mars, well before we did anything. But that was a little bit later, past, uh, you know, the 57. So they were really up there. So we had to get catch up. And we did as a result. So again, ARPA, Advanced Research Project Agency, is an agency in the Department of Defense. Why? Because it was an easy way to get money th from the government out into wow, places it needed. Wow, man, there's a lot of money there. A lot okay. of money. Okay. Now, in ARPA, they had what are called offices. One for space, one for mechanical engineering. And in 1962, they created and one, one for, for Leonard. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. Cal, you're too much. <laughs> one for computers in 62. A guy named Licklider headed it up. By the time 1966 came by, they had been funding really excellent work all across the United States, universities, research labs, etc. And each one became a highly specialized capability. For example, University of Utah, the fourth node on the ARPANET, it had excellent graphics. SRI had database, UCLA simulation, Illinois, high-performance computing, MIT, artificial intelligence. Each one developed special capability. By 1966, the director of, of IPTO, the, the computer group in, in ARPA, IPTO stands for Information Processing Techniques Office. That was a computer group within ARPA. They decided, every time they took on a new researcher, researcher said, buy me a computer, we'll buy you a computer. And I want the, stuff, I want the graphics from Utah, I want the high performance from Illinois, I want it all in my lab. And ARPA said, we can't give everybody everything, but if we had a network, You could log on from your site in Podunk City X to Utah and use the graphics there. Ah, we need a network. Well, where's the technology? It's already existing. Right in this book. Right. <laughs> so they brought me there. They brought one of my classmates to head it up. He worked for ARPA and brought others in. And we wrote a spec, sent the spec out to industry for them, somebody to bid on it. Both Baranek and Newman, the company I mentioned inside, They won the contract to create the first router, what's called an interface message processor. And so finally, I'm going to be able you to implement this. You got some money, this. and you're going to be yeah. able to pull off uh, what you've been thinking right. about. And actually diagramming, yep. putting, putting in, on paper. But I wasn't the only one, obviously. There were many other people in that early group that were contributing ideas. But that's how it went from, you know. It almost research. seemed like your whole life story has led you to that point, when well, you look at it. In retrospect, it's always easy to say that, right? Was it planned? No way. And by the way, I'll make a comment right now. There were many people involved, including myself. If none of us had ever been born, it still would have happened. You can be sure of that. It was in the air. The technology had caught up with the vision of a network. So who had a vision of this kind of thing? Where do you think the ideas arose? Well, I showed you a vision I had in 1969 as to what this network might become. Was anything earlier? You bet. I'm going to misquote somebody uh, who said basically the following. It will be possible for a businessman in New York to communicate with his colleague in London and send instant, instantly at no cost, using a device no larger than a watch, pictures, diagrams, text, messages across the world anywhere. That sounds like the internet, doesn't it? Yeah. You know who said that? No. 
a guy named Nikola Tesla. Oh, man. In, in 1908. Wow. So the point is this idea was in the air, but the technology wasn't there yet. We had to wait for the technology to catch up to the vision. And it was around the 60s when we began to see the capability, the high-speed lines, the high-performance high computers, the applications, boom. So that, that's a bigger picture, which is important. Okay. So you get out to UCLA, you get into this office, 1963. Yep. You start working, and it's going to be six years before you're going to be able to send the first internet that's message. Right. That's right. Was everything from the time you got into this office on a railroad track to that moment, or were there a lot of other things going on? First of all, nobody was interested in networks, as I said at that point, nobody. When I came here, I started supervising PH students and doing my own research. Even and with the ARPA behind you and the, the military? ARPA, and the ARPA came a little bit later. They, they were not dominant yet, and they were not thinking of a network. They began to fund me, not when I first came here, they began to fund me in around 1968. Once they had this plan ready and the company had, had watered a contract to build a network, I was helping them, but they were not funding me yet. So what was I doing here? I was doing research on networking and other performance evaluation things. So you're preparing for the moment. <sighs> Did I anticipate this would be implemented? That wasn't in my mind. I was, no. I was laying the fundamental principles and the mathematics and the theory in order to push this as a research object. That was the challenge. It were really hard and interesting problems. I was hoping we'd get an implementation, but I wasn't driving that. That fell upon us with ARPA, Sputnik ARPA, and the ARPANET. Okay. What happens in 69 that really is going to push this forward? Well, it was 1966 when the idea at ARPA said we need a network. And then they started the ball rolling and getting a group together, getting a plan, getting a spec, getting a, a bid sending it out, getting the company funded, and told BB&N, you will deliver the first router to UCLA over the Labor Day weekend, just after Labor Day weekend of 1969. They had only eight months from the time they won the contract until they had to deliver the first switch. Now think about that. It's a new technology, new users, new applications. They delivered that baby on time, on budget, up and running. That would never happen today. That would never happen today. <laughs> when you saw it, when they first, how did it first come in? Was it in a crate? It was did in they a, wheel it? It was in a crate. It was in a crate, of course, a lot of wooden structures. It was that imp you saw. Right. And by the way, the computer, the host computer, they had to bring up in the balcony. They couldn't fit it in the elevator. They had to hoist it up with a, with a lift, truck lift, onto the third floor and put it th through a, an opening in the building. Like a piano. Yeah, like a piano. But the imp came up, it fit in the elevator, put it in there, unpack it, and I had a team already, not only of my graduate student researchers, but I had a software team and a hardware team of graduate students who were good at doing you know, hardware and software and protocols and all the rest. And I even had a staff with you know, some hired programmers and hired assistants and administrators. I had 40 people working for me. That's why I needed this room, so we could hold meetings in here. So when this comes out of a crate, yeah, does everybody, like, get, like, <gasps> No, no. <laughs> it was low-key. The only time we got a lot of people was when we first connected that router 
to the host computer in that room on a 15-foot cable, and we were ready to send bits back and forth along that cable. That initially was the big day. Who was there? Well, ARPA was there. Computer Science Department was there. University Administration was there. AT&T was there because we we're going to use their long lines. GTE right. was there. That's the local company. Honeywell was there. was their mini computer. Basically, um, scientific data systems, they built the host computer. As I said, BBN was there. ARPA was there. Everybody's ready to point the finger if it didn't work. Oh, man. Did, did and, a lot of people come in thinking this is not going to work? Yeah, there was, oh, there was a lot of opposition. We had a hard time convincing people, A, there should be a network, and B, they should join the network. But the people came to see if it was going to, and it, it worked beautifully. The bits went back and forth, but there was still only one node. It was a month and a half later when we sent the first message, and nobody It's only was there. 15 feet. Right. <laughs> right. So, so that works, and now once that works, the next step is... But it wasn't from one host computer to another host computer through this little network. We needed to prove that once we had two nodes. Right. And, and, that, and, that and was, so you needed two computers connected two switches, two, by two nodes. Right. You know, and this technology, I mean, when you're around smart people, you start to get smarter, I'm discovering. Oh, uh, you, well, you said that very well. I told you back in the 60s, in the late 50s, it was a golden era at MIT. Here we had an unbelievable group of people. So it's your colleagues that basically enhance the work you're doing. I got to tell you, just sitting at this table is making me smarter by the second. You could have been an engineer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Okay. Could so have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been a contender. <laughs> All right, so let's take this to the momentous day in 1969. You told me the story downstairs in the room, but... I loved it so much, I want to hear it again and make sure everybody could hear it on the podcast. Okay. So... Then the night before, what are you thinking? Nothing. We had one node here at UCLA, one router here at UCLA with our computer in September 69. In October 69, the second router appeared 350 miles to the north at Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park. And they had their host computer and they connected their host to their switch, and then we had the long line connecting the two routers, the two switches. The plan was, by the end of October, to test the ability to log in between those two nodes. So that was in the plan. So as the end of October appeared, we made sure we ran that experiment. Now, I'm gonna just stop for one second here. This is only a few months after we landed on the moon. That's right, July was at the moon. Did yeah. that put something in the air that Is that a pun? <laughs> I didn't even know what I was <laughs> saying. But did it put a sentiment in the air that made what was going to happen in that special sanctuary that you yes just took no. me to? They were totally independent parallel efforts. Right. But the idea of embracing and celebrating science and technology was in the air. That was what Eisenhower hoped would happen, what Kennedy hoped would happen. And so... Reaching the moon was a magnificent event and made people realize technology is driving this generation. And so what we were doing was a technology effort, not nearly as, as celebrated, nor did it seem to have the potential of the man in the moon. You know, we didn't realize how far this would go. We, th we thought it was, and it was originally, a research network. The original plan, what Bulperanic and Newman, the company that got the contract, their contract was only to build 19 nodes across the United States, 19. 
They no, just have, want to connect 19 places. 19 research centers that ARPA was supporting. That was the whole idea. Of course, it, it never stopped. It kept growing exponentially once we got going. So it wasn't seen to be a world-changing event. So w what happens? You wake up that morning. Okay. Take me through the day. We knew that toward the end of October, and October 29th was toward the end of October, we're going to do this thing. So Charlie, one of my software programmers and a student, set up with a program up at Stanford Research Institute to run it that night. They agreed to do that. They didn't announce it. And I was their supervisor. And I told them they got to get it done. But I gave everybody a lot of flexibility. I'm going to get to the whole culture in a minute, which is not unimportant, by the way. So they s planned to do it that night. I was looking for another PhD student. I walked into the computer room looking for him, and I saw that they were getting ready to do this. So the point is, in that morning before, no expectations. I knew this was going to happen at some point in the next couple of days. There was no excitement, no plan, no balloons, no cameras. No champagne. No champagne. No voice recorder, just an entry in the logbook that we... No, no video? No, not at all. So in order to make this test, we had to log in from our host computer at UCLA through the router, through the high-speed line connecting to the second router up at SRI to their host computer. And the whole idea was to log in when you're sitting at UCLA to log into that remote machine. That would prove the concept of this network which was the ability to log in across the network, run capabilities at remote sites from your local site. So to do this, all we wanted to do was log in from UCLA to SRI. And to do that, you have to type L-O-G, and the rest of the word, I-N, login, the rest of the I-N would come back once we got the L-O-G up to SRI. So it was your job to type in the L-O-G. That's all, right. And then the I-N would be sent back to you. Automatically. Automatically. Well, actually, every character would be sent back. Type the L, it goes up there, it comes back. Ah, got the L. So we're ready to do this. This is a new technology. We had no idea if it's going to work. It was going to be a little hard to see what's going on. So to be safe, we had a telephone connection between Charlie and Bill. So they could talk to each other, you know, here's what's going on. Well, look at the irony here, as I mentioned to you. We're using a telephone network to prove a new technology, which is going to eat the lunch of the telephone network, and it did. Beautiful irony. So we on the phone, so Charlie typed the L, and he said, you get the L? Bill said, got the L, and the L appeared on, on Charlie's terminal. Get the O, got the O. Type the G, you get the G, crash. <laughs> System went down. So a few things, first of all, what was the first message then? L-O, low, as in lo and behold. Hey, that's poetic now. Poetic, prophetic. It's A even, poetic it, crash. It, it's even religious. Think there we it. go. So it was a perfectly short, prophetic, succinct, and powerful message. And we didn't have one plan. We weren't smart like Armstrong, giant leap for mankind, so the media could pick that up and photograph it and popularize it. We weren't that smart. We just were trying to do a login. And what is low? It's lo and behold. It's anticipating a world to come. We added the and behold later. I decided that was what it took. <laughs> so the first message was low. Now, second question is what broke? Was it our computer at UCLA? No. Was it our router? No. Was it the high-speed line? No. Was it the router at SRI? No. It was the SRI host computer. So it was their fault. And why was it their fault? What did they do wrong? Well, they didn't expect... When you type the G, 
it's not going to return only the G, it's going to return G-I-N. So now it's like asking three, it's like asking it to lift three times as much weight. Well, yeah, to send something three times as long, right. three characters, it was only written to send one character at a time. Uh, so there it. was a buffer overflow, took that machine down. And then half an hour later, Bill and Charlie fixed it, and they sent a full message, the full login. So it was a rather interesting event. We proved that you could do it. But I'd like to return to something I referred to a moment ago when, when I said I gave these students flexibility. Let's go back to ARPA. When ARPA was funding these research centers, how did they do it? How did they decide where to fund and how to do it? What they did is they'd go to some great researcher, say Marvin Minsky at MIT. They go to him, Marvin, we know you're a great researcher. Here's a pile of money. Go do something great in your domain. Choose what it is, shoot high. High, high risk, you high You don't payoff. even have to tell them. They're, oh, no. Here's the money. Give them money. They've proven they're great researchers. You're going to get this money for a long time. Failure's okay. Just keep going. And we're not going to watch you or control you. Go do what you need to do. It sounds they, great. It was magnificent. But notice it's not democratic. It was not a decision. It's not a competition. Oh, it's why does Marvin get it and Leonard not? And the answer is too bad. We know Marvin's good. <laughs> And, th and, that's, and that's the way they did it. Now, wow. so what happened? So a researcher like myself gets that kind of money. I'm a professor, what's called a principal investigator. And what am I going to do with the money? I'm going to fund graduate students. Right. How do I do it? The same way. I go to the graduate student and say, look, so-and-so, we need a host-host protocol between two computers. Go do it. Figure it out. Here's the money. Here's the money. Join your classmates, join your colleagues across the country, other graduate students. Go do it. We're not going to buy it. If you want some help, we'll give you help. But we opened up their creative juices, gave them flexibility. And I've coined a phrase which characterizes that wonderful culture of funding. The phrase is, delegate authority to trusted parties. You trust them, let them run with it. Don't get in their way. It's the worst thing you can do. And it worked beautifully. That was the culture of the early internet. And you have to thank ARPA for instilling it. And out of that era came all the wonders we have today. Time sharing, networking, graphics, chip technology, artificial intelligence, time sharing, all came out of that wonderful funding approach. We don't have that today because it's gotta be done by peer-to-peer -peer review, competition, in some ways limited amounts of money. We went through a period where it almost reversed and all those things changed. Small problems, don't fail, get it done on time, and here's what you should be doing. But ARPA has now come out of that, and their, their current administration is much more benevolent and understand the impact of what I just described. They don't, they're not quite as flexible because the law gets in the way. There was a Mansfield Amendment which said it's got to be competitive, it's got to have a military application if it's coming out of the department. That's, there were things, but they're doing some great work now. But I think that open, free culture these are the words that dominated our thinking at the time. Open, free, trusted, shared, ethical. This is the 60s. This is the 60s, exactly. It did influence the mentality and the expectations. You're exactly right. And that drove so much goodness. Those are not the words we use today on the internet. You don't trust it. It's not ethical. It's not free. It's not open. And as a result, the internet has evolved along a trajectory, uh, the following trajectory. In those early years, this was a research and engineering network. 
So there was and, no thought of be, beyond just, we're gonna connect this research center to another, and they're gonna be able to share. And things will bubble up, and it's right. going, look, this is bringing up technology in the United States. Where was the next step where people started to observe, whoa, we can do something else with this? Excellent question. What happened is, uh, in the 1980s, the National Science Foundation got involved. What they did, they had deployed supercomputers around the country doing supercomputer work. And then they decided in the 80s, let's connect them together. What better network than the ARPANET to connect it together, who is now called the Internet. Eventually it would be called the Internet. So they basically beefed up the speed of the backbone network. It, it was called the NSF net for a while, National Science Foundation. Now, once the NSF came in, whereas before it was all computer scientists, now they brought in chemists, physicists, biologists, oceanographers, psychologists, all manner of science capability. So the constituency expanded dramatically. This is in the late 80s. Good. Now, where does a chemist work, a research chemist? They work in a university or in a research lab of a large chemical company, as right. an example. What are they doing? What are those research chemists doing with the internet? They're sending email, mostly. Some file transfer, email, it's a wonderful application. The larger company surrounding this research group sees that. So the executives, the staff, the manager, the agency, we like that, in, that email. We'd like to get involved with this thing called the internet. That's when the dot-coms began to appear in the late 80s. A, that was number one. Number two, Al Gore. Al Gore was the most knowledgeable senator in Congress on the Hill in those early days, in the, in the 80s. He knew everything about the internet. He was supported. He came to our meetings. He was really a participant. I wrote a, an audit, a, a report, a committee report, I was chairman of it, called Towards a National Research Network. He liked it so much he had me present it to his Senate subcommittee. And he used that report, this is 1988, when he became vice president. Well, well, actually, when he was advising the first President Bush, convinced Bush as one of his last acts to sign into law something called the High Performance Computing and Communications Act of 1991. You know it as the Gore Bill. It created what you call the information superhighway. What he did, he took government, academia, and industry, had them work together to create the high-speed backbone network, the underlying network of the Internet. Now I see why he... He said what he said, right? Yeah. He, and he exaggerated. It was taken out of context. But fundamentally, he was correct. He had a big piece of helping this thing happen. Okay. So now we have, two, we have dot coms. They wanted capability. The gigabit backbone, the capability was there. What was missing? What was missing was an easy way for people to get onto the network. The interface was an ugly interface with you know, green characters on a screen and poor syntax. Along comes the World Wide Web, browsers, a graphical user interface, the kind we use today, very easy for everybody to use. Once those all got together, suddenly it reached out to the consumer world and the commercial world. And it was, in fact, just around that time, on April 12th, 1994, when the first spam message appeared. What did that do? It made a dramatic change. First of all, it, it, it was sent out by two lawyers 
advertising their services to help people get into a green card lottery and get a green card. They sent this message out. It was the first broad-based email, which was an advertisement. That was not allowed. This was a well, research network. What did network. all the scientists do when they saw this advertisement floating along the internet? They went berserk. We saw that thing. We said, what the hell is that? You can't send an advertisement on our research network. So we sent email back to them. We said, stop. Cease and desist. Shame on you. And they spammed you. <laughs> it was a spam. Well, no. We sent so much email back to them, we took down their server. So as a result of the first spam message, we created the first denial of service attack, you know, unintendedly. But it was too late. Other people had gotten the idea. Exactly. It was not out of the bag. They said, hmm, I can advertise, I can sell, I can make money on this thing called the internet. So it took a dramatic turn. Be before this, yeah, there was hacking and there, there, there was some nuisance stuff and some games and some worms. When this came out, suddenly everybody began to try to monetize the network and reached out to the consumer. And it basically allowed the dark side now to emerge because when there's money involved and unvetted people, what was the power of the internet at that time? Anybody with a computer, a laptop, a PC, whatever, and an internet connection could reach out to millions of people immediately at no cost in time or effort, anonymously. That's the power. Everybody had a voice. It's also a perfect formula for the dark side. So some evil person in their basement eating a banana can reach out and send terrible things out there, try to break things down. And so the dark side began to emerge once the unwashed public got in and there was a money motive to drive a lot of the evil behavior. So when all the scientists attacked those lawyers yeah. and it took down the lawyer's server, did was there a rejoicing or was there immediate... Oh no, more. No, we didn't, we didn't see the more happen immediately. We saw that, we said, that's not allowed, and we reacted to it. But it was just beginning now to develop this enormous move toward advertising and spam and all the rest. And we couldn't control it at this point. This network was all over the world by this time. This is my big question. I've never been in a real science atmosphere, but what happens when you create something and discover it's beyond your control. It's like Frankenstein. <laughs> Good analogy. We never tried to control it. Remember I said the words we used were things open and shared and That's free. Right. We wanted people to use it. It was our drive to get people. I told you earlier, nobody wanted to join this network in the beginning. We couldn't get universities to join. Why not? You're at a university. You own a big computer for the computer science Why department. should I share with you? Exactly. Right. So yeah. we had to twist their arm. We did it two ways. One, I got them to say how little they might use the network. I published the matrix, and now they were committed. But more importantly, Opera said, we're funding you. You're going to join oh. this network. That was the real lever. Wow. And once they joined, they liked it, but it wasn't easy to use. How are you going to use the graphics at Utah? Well, I have to have a login, have to know the command language, have to know how to run the application, understand it. It's not easy. So there's very little use in the beginning until we made it easier and got people involved. But the point is, this was not something we were ever trying to control or try to monetize as researchers. But at this point, now we got the heavy-duty industry, commercial world, 
And uh, as I wrote in an op-ed piece in the LA Times a few months ago, this magnificent thing called the internet, which had such capability, had now been hijacked as a system to sell detergent. Oh, man. But that's, was, there a, was there a specific date like that you saw this overwhelming dark side approaching? No, because it happened little by little. Even before that spare message, there was pornography. Why is pornography always the first? You can help answer that as well as I. It usually drives the technology into public use. VHS, for example, even books and comic books. Pornography is, is, is a low common denominator that drives people to engage in an activity. It doesn't get me involved personally, but it happens to be a fact of history. And by the way, you didn't have to, to get to pornography, you had to ask for it. It wouldn't hit you. In those you early days, seek it out? you had to seek it out. And people know, well, you want to see some pornography when well, you go here and you go in there, blah, blah. I never got it. It's anything. like a well-kept secret. A secret that people weren't trying to figure out. But I'll give you an example. I mentioned this watch before. It's a very special watch. And one day it, it needed some part. And when the browsers were around at that time, I typed in the word watch. Now think about what that word means. I was suddenly bombarded with pornography, watch. <laughs> right? Oh, I did, and so, and you know, I had to turn it all off, reject wow. it all. But you really had to seek it out. Now it comes at you all the time. There's all kinds of ads, you know, that you click this and boom. But those kinds of things were emerging little by little. Um, hacking, um, worms, little things that didn't pervade the environment. And then when we saw things like uh, spam, serious hacking, about 10 years ago I said, well, the internet's going to its teenage years. It's misbehaving, it's disobedient. It'll outgrow it like any teenager. Didn't happen. It's a young adult now. What's dominating it? Nation states taking advantage, putting boundaries around their network, basically uh, destroying other nations' capabilities. We see organized crime with serious international money laundering. We see, you know, we gave everybody a voice. Now there's so many voices, what do you listen to? Well, you listen to the extremes at the edge, who very loud voices. So all these things are much more serious, wow. dark-sided network. And that's what I'm railing about these days, the privacy, your privacy is gone. When's the last time Facebook asked you what privacy policy you would like applied to you? They don't ask you. They just do it, and they give you a 50-page yeah, legal you know document. What? This is a great. This is a great opening for me to ask this question. Okay. Because I think that there was a moment in time when you wanted something on the internet or a computer, and then in order to get it you had to start clicking this accept. Exactly. I accept, I accept. You don't, and, and the contracts are like. Oh, they're deadly. 20 oh, they're, pages long. And, and, and they're serious. They're saying things like, I'm gonna reach into your contact database. I'm gonna follow your keystrokes on the, on the keyboard. I'm gonna watch your web browsing behavior. You don't even know that. I, exactly. And all and, we're doing is right. just hitting accept, accept, accept. And I do it as well because, you know, oh, I want that application. It, it's ignorance and, and deceit. So even you just, do you, do you even like look carefully at the language? No, I you don't. just hit accept. I don't. I don't I, feel so bad now. But you notice we're living in California. Lately, they've been saying 
we have, we have cookies on the site. Right. You accept. Why? Because the CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act, has made them do that. And sometimes I don't accept it, and I still get into the application. Okay. From the time you were a kid, you were telling me you, you couldn't see where this was going to take you. You didn't right. Right. go off on the tracks to do this. And then, again, once it was working, and then you saw the dark side starting to come in, and then you make assumptions that, ah, it's just a teenage kid, it's going to grow up, and then you saw nation states get involved. Do you have any sense of where this might take us 20 years from now? Okay, so you're really asking at least two questions. First question you may be asking is, what is the technology going to look like as we roll forward? I didn't even know I was asking it, but it's a good question. <laughs> it's an easier question to answer than the other that I'm going to mention in a minute. If you remember, I told you part of my vision back in 69 was that this network would become invisible like electricity. Electricity is a wonderful service. It's a plug in the wall. You plug into it and you get electricity. You don't know how it's made. It's always there. It's not complicated. It's a very simple interface and what's going on is behind the scenes. The internet should be like that. This is not a simple interface. There's tiny keyboards, tiny screens, different protocols. You're Even holding you up think an it's iPhone great. right yeah. now, yeah. Oh, right. Right. You, 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 you think it's easy, but it's, it's really still clumsy. A Le lot less clumsy than the early interfaces, but it's still clumsy. It should be, when I walk into a room, the room should know I'm here. The internet should be everywhere. I should be able to talk to the room. I should be able to ask it, where's a book by Claude Shannon? You say it's on the shelf number four or down the hall of your colleague's office. I should be able to communicate with the internet as easily as you and I are talking using language, gestures, haptics, wow. expressions. And it should come back to me the same way. Well, that's beginning to happen because of two developments. One is called the Internet of Things, where we have little tiny devices that we can embed into our walls, our desks, our fingernails, our bodies, our cars, our homes, and they perform services for us. For example, their logic, its memory. Isn't its this like Siri and uh, yes, Alexa? Yes, it's a good example, or Nest. Their actuators, their sensors, their microphones, their displays, their speakers, and they're all in the environment, and you don't have to see them, they're there so when you walk in, they, they sense cameras, et cetera. That's one. The other piece is what we call intelligent software agents. And Siri is another example of that, or Alexa. It's software that's in this network that's performing functions for you. It's tracking things you're interested in. It knows what your profile and preferences are. So when you walk into an environment, it provides those services you expect and it's seeking out information for you. So there's the devices themselves and the software that's out there running around a network serving you. It turns out right now, those two things, embedded devices, the Internet of Things, and the intelligent software agent, they're generating more traffic on the Internet than our humans. They're doing all the stuff in the background. So where's that leading? It's leading to a world where the network will become invisible. The Internet will be everywhere. You won't have to look for it. The interface will be easy. And I'd like to refer to that as a pervasive global nervous system. That's what the planet's going to become. It's going to be everywhere.
This sounds like no privacy at all. No privacy at all. You gave your privacy up a long time ago. Every time you carry a credit card around, you put your telephone number into a telephone book in the old days, you carry a cell phone around, they know we're here. They're probably listening to us right Who now. Who is they? <laughs> that's what I never. That's what I never understand. Like there can't be enough people to be sitting around wondering of what Leonard and Cal are talking about. However, they will send you an ad based on your okay. latest uh, gadget you bought. Got, I got it. So they're taking all that data. They're deciding how do I sell more stuff. Right. So nobody's really spying on me. They just want to make money off our conversation. Yes and no. It may be that evil players or the government or some political institution or some social institution has a reason for trying to track you for nefarious reasons or good reasons. And they, they can do that as well. All right. So, and, and that's going to be very difficult for somebody to evade that's, because they've absolutely. got to click the accept button in order to use the technology but for there's themselves. No, there's no accept button when the internet is everywhere. There may be one big accept button when you get born. <laughs> And there it is. Privacy is a serious issue right now. And, and the problem is there's no way you can interact with the policy that's being applied to you. I made this point in that op-ed. You should be able to specify what privacy policy you want applied to you. Do you want to allow them into your contact database? Do you want to allow them to look at your keystrokes, this, that? You should be able to describe it. And sites like Facebook should be able to tell you what they're doing in a way that's understandable, not the 20 pages, but in a simple graphical way. And so you can compare these and say, well, either they match, okay, or they don't match, and let's negotiate. I'll give this, you give me that. And if you can't come to an agreement, you go away. That doesn't happen now. And one argument that these companies have is, well, we can't give a customized privacy policy for every human being on the planet. Baloney. They already do that. The ads you get are already customized to you. Wow. So they could do it, but they don't want to. Okay. So, but that's not happened yet. And I have some ideas as to how you can present privacy policies or other policies in a way that's visually easy to see instead of a legal document that's 20 or 50 pages long. Your work may just be huh? beginning. There's plenty left. Don't worry. <laughs> plenty left. <laughs> I tell that to the students. <laughs> the other question you're really asking is, what are the applications and services? What are things going to give me and do for me? And my answer to you is that the best we're able to predict is that we will not be able to predict that. The major applications and services, the popular ones, we've been woefully inadequate in predicting. For example, nobody saw email coming. It suddenly hit us on the side of the head, took over the traffic of the network. Nobody saw YouTube, Napster, basically user-generated content, social networks, search engines. None of those things were anticipated ahead of time. They came and hit us on the side of the head. And that's wonderful because we've now created a system, this whole thing, which is going to constantly surprise us in sudden, unexpected, explosive ways. And that's a good thing because that means there's opportunity for every generation to contribute and provide these services and, and invent them. I'm glad to end this on an optimistic <laughs> note. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for this time. My pleasure, guys. It's, it's, nice. it's not only taking in the information. It's been spiritually good for me. <laughs> I walk out of here I'm glad. a stronger man. That's great. Well said. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much, and I hope to see you at breakfast many days ahead. <laughs> By all means. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. How would I ever 
have gotten into the office of the man who was there when the internet got started, if not for Tim Ferriss. Tim's always taken me to new places. Want to thank Philip Lanos for helping out on the video attached to this episode. Philip always comes through when you need him. You can look for that video on Instagram, my LinkedIn page, and the Big Questions with Cal Fussman YouTube page. This we're just going to get ramped up. Want to thank my sponsor, Sportique, for taking the journey with me. I'm able to roam in comfort in my Sportique threads, and I hope you will too. All you got to do is go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL to get a 20% discount. Let's make this the year to throw away our fears and get the best out of life. Hope to clink glasses with you as it happens. Cheers. Cheers.